William J. Lemp was a German brewer who settled in St. Louis, Missouri. After the Civil War was over, his beer business boomed, and he bought a mansion so he could raise his large family. William had hoped to pass the family business on to his son Frederick, but Frederick was not very healthy, and he died of heart failure before he reached 30. Frederick's death haunted William, and then his own health began to deteriorate. After William's own best friend Frederick Pabst also died, he became distraught and shot himself in the head about a month later. As the Prohibition era went on to destroy Lemp's brewing dynasty, more and more of his family members passed away under tragic circumstances. The brewing facilities were eventually auctioned off for a fraction of their worth. The Lemp Mansion was converted to a restaurant that you can visit today. Uh, they say if you go there, you might uh, catch a glimpse of the ghost of the Lavender Lady. Supposedly, you can hear phantom dogs barking or see unexplained shadows. But maybe the strangest of all is the mysterious monkey boy who hides in the attic, watching all those who pass by on the street below. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This happened to my telling you stories of the old... There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, what our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome back, all of you lovely listeners. We are so happy you're here. We just think about you all the time and how great you are and how of all the podcast listeners in all of the world, you're the most stubborn, no, smartest. (laughs) Because you make Stubborn it through these, these episodes where we go walk about in the strangest of places and we just can't wait to hold your hands and skip off into another little corner of uncharted territory. Please don't go skipping off with a stranger into a dark path like these. <laughs> no, we've we've had a hundred episodes to earn your trust. We're not strangers. So we do want to welcome all of you back. We want to remind you to leave ratings and reviews on iTunes if you can. It always helps people learn about the show, helps their rankings on iTunes. We do want to remind you, you can go to our website at justastorypod.com where you can have access to all of our sources. If you want to prove something to your stubborn friend. I bet you have stubborn friends. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say I bet they all have stubborn know-it-all friends. Or they are. No, of course not. They're the reasonable ones, for sure. Looking at you, Jim. Tammy. Her too. On the website, you can also get access to our merch store, which will have all sorts of t-shirts and other goodies designed by Sam. It's true. There's also a link to our Patreon page where you can go if you would like to contribute to the show financially. But we also accept love, adoration, or just, you know idle conversation our phone calls we love phone calls and you can make a phone call to our voicemail line by dialing the urban legend hotline and the number for that hotline is 512-222-3375 and after the beep you can tell us all about your favorite urban legend scary story tell us a joke tell us about how your mom won't stop doing that thing where she talks to the cat and now she thinks the cat's talking back and it's getting really weird because you heard it too and now it's just confusing. I would love to hear that story. Me too. But Samantha? Jacob? Back to the story at hand. As always. Today we are going to start with a classic. Classic. American. 
haunted house. I love a haunted house. Good old haunted house. And this one's got a good bit of truth behind it. Well, that's fantastic. Those are the best kind, as Andrew Garfield once awkwardly said. Or does it? Wait, what? (laughs) Not or does it, Andrew Garfield. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, or does it have some truth? Got it, got it. I'm on board. So today we're going to be going down that dark, dark, deep path to St. Louis, Missouri. Is there a deep, dark path to St. Louis, Missouri? Yeah, it's called the Mississippi River. Okay, well, it always just kind of struck me as a place where you go on Oregon Trail, like Gateway to the West. You know, get your oxen. You're going to need an extra wagon axle. That's just the arches, which you can go up in. I don't want to. You've told me that before. I refused to do it. <laughs> I'm surprised you refused. I did. I had no desire. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. But anyway, so St. Louis is home to the Limp Mansion. As opposed to what? The Rigid Mansion? Ha ha. Limp, L-E-M-P. Okay, so German? Yes. Okay. So this is an old Victorian mansion in the heart of St. Louis. It's been declared one of the most haunted houses in the United States. It's a site of death. Aren't all haunted houses the site of death? Beer. Uh, Actually, a lot of haunted houses have to do with beer and breweries and things. It's really strange. Family curse. Uh, I'm familiar. Ghost. Got it. And other unexplained phenomena. What do they got besides ghosts? Oh, we'll get there. Okay. Hold your ghost. So the Limp family is of German descent. They came over from Germany to the U.S. and eventually settled in St. Louis in 1838. So the original patriarch of the family was Johann Adam Limp. And he started a small little store and also sold some homemade beer. Cool. Which was of the lager style. Oh, fascinating. Like what you think of as beer today, pretty much. If you're drinking a Bud Light that your uncle handed you at Thanksgiving coming up. (laughs) Or seven. Sometimes Thanksgiving's hard. But this was in contrast to the heartier beers that were mostly sold in the U.S. at the time. It was very popular. He eventually closed a store and built a brewery in Mm. 1840 and used the natural underground caverns to store the beer, which was also kept cold with ice cut from Mississippi. So the Limp Western Brewing Company continued to prosper and by the 1850s was one of the largest in the city. And 1858 captured the first place of the annual St. Louis Fair. But he was a millionaire by the time of his death and his son, William, inherited all of the money and the brewery and the legacy. I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess. I'm just guessing. He blew it. No. Oh, they usually blow it. That's comes third, later. Third generation? Yeah. yeah. That born into it. Don't know exactly. how. Yeah, okay. So he expanded the brewery to where it took up five city blocks. Wow, that's a big brewery. And in 1876, he purchased what's now known as the Limp Mansion from his father-in-law. It was a 33-room Victorian mansion, which he started to remodel and expand. Why did his father-in-law have a 33-room mansion? What did he do? He married into money. Who, Limp or the father-in-law? Limp. Lots of money in St. Louis, huh? Oh, at this time? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. St. Louis was very well High on the hog, those Missourians. Because here you also had Anheuser-Busch uh-huh. and Paps, which were just getting started. Oh, cute. And he helped them. Mm-hmm. Especially Paps. Anheuser-Busch definitely became their rival, with their beer going up against Falstaff beer, which was the Limp's flagship beer. Okay. Now, amongst all the success is when the tragedy begins. As it is wont to do, yes. Frederick Limp, William Sr.'s favorite son and heir apparent, dies in 1901 at the age of 28 
What happened? He died of heart failure. He was always kind of a sickly kid. Okay. So this really sent William Limp into some serious depression after his son's death. And then his close friend, Frederick Pabst, died a few years later. Blue ribbon. Blue ribbon. Gone. Black ribbons. Black ribbons and the blue ribbons. Okay, got it. So as he began to sink more and more into depression, he was lying in his bed one day on February 13th, 1904, just about a month after Paps died, and he shot himself in the head with a 38 Smith & Wesson. So he was not just like dabbling in depression. He was really not doing well. Yeah, and you'll see this family probably has some genetic predisposition to depression. Okay. And they make beer. Not the best combination. So at the time of his death, his brewery was valued at $6 million and his personal assets at $10 million. That's insane. In 1904? Oh, yeah. So he's like Astro Rich. He's oh, yeah. like, would have been on Titanic Rich. Maybe you should have booked a White Star Line cruise. Well, he would have had to wait like eight years. That's fine. <laughs> would have given him something to look forward to. And True. Then, and then when it didn't come, he would have been sad again. Vicious cycle. This wealthy, wealthy man's... Hypothetical projected future sadness, which he would have had to get to England to do, but whatever. So with the heir apparent. Gone. And the patriarch. Gone. It comes to. William Limp Jr. Okay, so he had a son named William Limp Jr. Yes. Who was not his favorite. So I'm guessing he was kind of a questionable character. Yeah, I mean, he was involved in the business beforehand, but his other son was definitely marked to be the leader. This is a real Don Jr. Eric situation we have going on here. Sure. Okay. <laughs> so William Lump Jr. was, you know, kind of a playboy. Mm-hmm. But he did get married. Good for him. To Lillian. Good for her. And she was known as the Lavender Lady. Before she died? Oh, yeah. It's weird to be a color hyphen lady before you die usually that comes after you know where you get to be the gray lady or the white lady but she's in life gets to be known as the lavender lady yeah well i'll give you one guess so why they called her that she either liked lavender smell or wore lavender she wore lavender okay always i get it it's my favorite color and she even had her horses harnesses for her carriage dyed lavender i mean i'm fine with it Can I be the periwinkle lady? Sure. It's my favorite color. It's very ominous. So the lavender lady could spend money as fast as people could drink beer. Okay, good. Recipe for success. So they did have a son, William III, their one and only child, at least on the record. Okay. So legend goes that with William Jr. being quite the playboy, he had an illegitimate son. Sure. Sure. So he was born with a deformity that led him to be known as the monkey-faced boy. That's just ugly. That's not nice. Rumor goes that he was kept hidden away in the attic. Many articles online. Oh, well, I'm so glad we're citing sources. (laughs) I like to cite sources because everyone cites that according to St. Louis historian Joe Gibbons. Joe Gibbons wrote about the monkey-faced boy? He interviewed... A former nanny and a chauffeur who worked at the mansion long ago, and they verified that the boy existed. Uh-huh. So first of all... Joe Gibbons and the monkey face boy, like, that's that's a hell of a coincidence. Joe Gibbons. Yeah. Gibbons. Yeah. Like a gibbon. Like a gibbon. 
So mm, I looked, tried to find this, like some kind of primary source for this. I couldn't find it. I would love to be corrected. <laughs> Someone sent it to me. But the name is just like. Too on the nose. And to add even more. Grains of salt? Yes. Okay. There is another tale and another haunted St. Louis book. Talking about later when they refurnished it, a person was laying carpet and he saw a ghost. And guess what his name was? Um, is his name Pygmalion Marmoset? It's Joe Gibbons. Okay, fine. <laughs> so I don't know about that. I just don't know. Big IDK. Okay. My so, BFF Joel. In 1908, Lillian and William Jr. file for divorce. <gasps> The lavender lady has had enough of his shit. Yes. So she's going to pack up all her belongings, which are conveniently color-coded, and go. That's right. And he was in 1908. Oh, my God. That means we're going to get some yellow journalism about the lavender lady, and we all know those are complimentary colors. Oh, yes. So they both brought interesting arguments to who should get the money and who should get their son. So this son, William the Third, William the Third is like participating in everyday life, and oh, yeah. he's not locked away. Oh yeah, that's all legend. The only source is Joe Gibbons. <laughs> okay, cool. And we don't trust Joe Gibbons. I'm not gonna trust that monkey's uncle. <laughs> so Lillian said that William Jr. was bringing women into their home and entertaining them in her private spaces while keeping her on a tight leash due to his jealousy. Now, William said that Lillian was just not being a proper lady. Well, what was she doing? Oh, Samantha. Terrible things. Like showing some ankle? Foul language. Ha! Cursing. Oh, no! Constantly wearing lavender in public to draw attention to herself. I do all of these things. And they even presented into evidence a photo of her smoking. I hope you don't divorce me. Because <laughs> I'm definitely not getting the kids. <laughs> So they did get divorced. She got a settlement. It was the largest monetary divorce settlement in state history at the time. She also got custody of William III. Fantastic. So the brewery began to decline as competition grew and um, Junior was busy. Busy doing what? With his ladies. Oh, did he really entertain a lot of ladies? Is that... That's the story. That's the word on the street? Okay, so he really was just like... I mean, like, is it that crazy? That is such, like, not a leap to me. No, I mean, it's it's fine and fair. I was just wondering if it was all something Lillian made up for her own sake, or if it was something he was really known to do. I think he was pretty known to do it. Okay, <laughs> fine. So, the brewery began, was declining, and in 1919, we get... Prohibition. The 18th Amendment. The least favored amendment. No one likes that amendment. And you know, that was a moment in American history where we made a mistake and we all look back on that and say, what were we thinking? And yet the Civil War, we still fight. But anyway. It's not like we had any amendments to reverse that either. Oh, wait. wait. Mm. <laughs> so shortly after 1920, William's sister, who was the wealthiest heiress in St. Louis, shot herself. Oh, no. Her name was Elsa Limp Wright, and she was having a lot of trouble with Mr. Wright. Guess he was Mr. Wrong. Uh, maybe he was Mr. Limp. Aww. Aww. So in 1922, he sold the Falstaff name and the brewery 
This is we're back to William Jr. Oh, now. Yes. Okay. And he began to sink into depression until on December 29th of 1922, he shot himself in the heart with a 38 caliber revolver in his home. Man. In 1943, yet another tragedy when William Lump III died of a heart attack at the age of 42. That's pretty young. Oh yeah, it's very young. That's like there's probably probably a genetic component to it. So Uncle Charles inherits the house and he remodels the house and lived there with two servants and legend goes with the monkey boy as well. Monkey boy's doing fine. He doesn't have the genetic predisposition to depression or heart problems that Not everyone that else in the family Not seems to have. He may have because according to legend, he dies around the age of 30 and is buried in the family plot in an unmarked grave. Just in the graveyard. Yes. Okay, well, that's easy to check. Has anybody ever tried to check it? Yes. Are you serious? I was being a facetious asshole. I know. And no, there is an unmarked grave. What? Yeah. It's totally one of the mistresses. Probably. (laughs) Have they dug it up to see if it's like a deformed 30? Of course not. Well, I don't know. They're checking the graves. Desecration. Looking in the records like we do to see if there is something. Oh, they found that in the records. They didn't like go and like... Do a ground x-ray or something. No. People do all kinds of shit. It's probably been on Ghost Hunters 15 times. It has. You know Zach Bagers is out there with a metal detector. So old Uncle Charles was quite OCD. Good. Oh, so many rich people are, right? Oh, Howard Hughes. And, uh, and he shot himself. No. In 1949, along with his dog. Uncle Charles. So, of course, there is a ghost dog there as well. Oh, my God. How do you know that? What do you mean? Like, who recorded the ghost dog? Do people, is it still seen? Is it like oh, a, yeah. Or All is it time. like people see, like, the current occupant with one of those leashes you buy at Disney World? That's probably like- it <laughs> It's an invisible dog. So, pretty much one member of the family kind of survived all this tragedy. Lillian. Well, she wasn't the family anymore. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Edwin Limp. And he survived and lived to the age of 90. And this is Charles and William first brother as well? Okay. So legend goes that his servants burned all the paintings and family documents after he died. Assholes? Why'd they do that? He told them to. Okay. So the mansion was eventually sold and turned into a boarding house where it became a classic derelict Victorian creepy mansion on the corner. Fantastic. And then the ghosts began to worsen. Worsen? Oh, yes. There were knocks and footsteps, strange sounds. In 1980, Life magazine declared it one of the most haunted houses in America. It was eventually bought by Dick Pointer and restored to its former Mm -mm. glory. That's his real name. No. (laughs) Not legend. Really? Dick Pointer buys the Lamp Mansion? Are you... Like, this is not... This is not toilet humor hour, sir. It's not? No. What is it not? Classy humor hour. Oh, I didn't know we were changing the format of the show. <laughs> so, anyway, back to Dick Pointer in the Limp Mansion. So it's now a restaurant, a B&B, and a theater. And people still report apparitions and people watching them. And mm-hmm. shadow men and people peering over the shower while they take a shower. Okay, that's just Dick Pointer. <laughs> oh, don't say that. He's a real person. <laughs> still alive. I'm sorry, Dick Pointer. Of course, the attic is still said to be haunted by the monkey face boy. 
Can we get him a more PC name, please? Well, some people call him Zeke. Okay, I prefer Zeke. Yes. So people passing by can see him peeking out of the third floor attic window. And ghost investigators have often left toys in the middle of his room. And they'll draw a circle around them to see if they move. And consistently, when they return, the toys are found in another location. Is the floor uneven? Yeah, so most likely. Okay. So like I said, vast majority of these stories are true. The real legend here, the real pretty much falsified <laughs> to what we can tell version of this is the monkey face boy story, Zeke. Mm. You know, some people now think he may have had like Down syndrome okay. or something like that. But most likely, I don't know. I don't know. He may, may not be. He may, may not be like in existence. Yeah. Oh, okay. Good news. Okay. The dog was probably not shot. That's good. It was not mentioned in the police reports. It would have been mentioned in the police reports. They would have mentioned that. Even a hundred years ago. You know, people do still report hearing man's best ghost friend <laughs> walking around. There can be a dog that died on the property that could haunt it. He didn't have to be murdered. There's not some ghost law that if you shoot a dog, it turns into a ghost that I know of. I mean, that you know of. Yeah. It's- be fair. So the monkey face boy or Zeke story. Call him Zeke. The monkey face boy is terrible. It's all, it's all ridiculous. Okay. <laughs> you know, some say he was a illegitimate child of William Jr. and a prostitute or a servant. Or that maybe he was the son of William and the Lavender Lady. But all the legends agree that he was kept locked away in the attic. Now one paranormal investigator said, The attic, that's probably the worst place to be. Just the feeling you get real sad and depressed. Especially up in the attic, where they keep the monkey boy. That was the limp's child that they locked in the attic. If you look at the records, they did. But they kept it real guarded, because back then you didn't want people to know that your children were odd or anything like this. They tried to hide him away, and school children would walk by and see him up in the attic window. So it's documented? No. <laughs> so he just made that up. What? Yes. This house has, like... A supernatural ability to make people make shit up. I guess so. Okay, so it's a very haunted house. Like, there are tons of ghosts there. Sure. But what makes it special? (laughs) I buy it. Well, he's like, there's such a feeling of depression and sadness. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That all lines up. You don't need an attic captive. Yeah, but some people say that maybe there were documents about him in the burned family records. Yeah, and maybe... He didn't die when he was 30. Maybe he was abducted by aliens. It's possible. I mean, it is. It could happen. Maybe he and the ghost dog absconded and went and started a haunted attraction and joined a circus and lived out their days eating popcorn and hot dogs. Until those meddling kids came around. Right. I mean, like it's just like there's no reason. There's absolutely no... Like the unmarked grave. Okay. That I get. It's probably for the dog. So... The story is not mentioned in Limp the Haunting History, the definitive biography written by Stephen Walker. He could not find any evidence, and he said, No one's ever convinced me it's anything but an urban legend. Everything the Limps did was front-page news. I can't believe something like this would have escaped everybody's notice. I think that would be right for a scandal page or something. I'm sure Mr. Limp had a lot of enemies. I mean, it would have come under such scrutiny. First of all, Lillian would have told it. Oh, after? Yeah. Like when she was maybe. in divorce court yeah. and she would have told it. Good point. When she's trying to get his money. He's so terrible. Look what he's done. Unless it was hers. 
if he was hers, do you really think she would have left him with William Jr.? I don't think it's real. <laughs> I don't either. I'm just saying, like, there's no way you go through a messy public divorce and don't bring this up. There's one more little factor to throw in the mix. Mm-hmm. There are also rumors. Rumors? That the limps kept a menagerie of animals and that they may have actually had a monkey. Now, this is not proven at the limp mansion, but... Edwin, that surviving limp, did keep a lot of animals on his other private estate. So maybe he was really fond of one particular monkey and he brought him home. I mean, we've seen Planet of the Apes, the new one with James Franco. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's it. So, that, I mean, who knows? Maybe there actually was a monkey <laughs> and like a bunch of stories just got kind of amalgamated. But if you want to go a ghosty way. As I often do. Now, the house was used in the mid 20th century as overflow for the Children's Hospital of St. Louis. So like potentially like long-term care patients. Or kids that were really sick or might have had serious medical problems. So you can go ghosty with that if someone passed away. Or maybe someone passing by the house saw a kid that had some sort of, you know, genetic disorder, etc. Yeah. And talked about it and they're like, it was at the Limp Mansion. And then the story just kind of... Exactly. Does, did what stories do, and ta-da, monkey boy. Yeah, so I kind of think that that may be the source of the story more than anything else. Mm-mm. Here's the deal. Oh, you got it? Clearly. Of course. Okay, here's the deal. So, in the beginning, the thing they saw in the upstairs window was William Jr. making signals to his lover. Okay. In the beginning, like whoever he was going to meet, he'd go up there and like two if I see. And so people were like, there's some weird happenings up there. And after he died and Charles was there, it was Charles dancing with his dog. They would go up there and they would cavort and they had this like whole like ritual. And so they'd see the dog and the man like turning. Yeah. And then when it was Edwin, they saw his monkey. And then. Edwin didn't live there. I don't care. Okay. And then. After they'd been seeing his monkey for a while, then the children's hospital moved in. And then they actually saw sick children. And over the years, we get Zeke, which is actually an acronym for Zoological Extraterrestrial Experimental Kid. Okay. Just pull that one out of your ass. Yeah. Good job. (laughs) Solved it. Boom. Done. Meddling kids. (laughs) So these ideas and these stories of people hiding children away, especially children that are born with some sort of deformity or, you know, what we now would say is like a genetic condition, have been around for quite some time. And there are some very famous tales. So one story that I give a skosh, and that is a proper term of measurement, a skosh more credibility, has to do with Glam's Castle. Where's that? Scotland. Oh, no, not the accent. (laughs) I'm not doing that accent the whole time because I'm always worried when I do any, like, geographically identifiable British Isle dialect that I'm close enough to irritate people but not right. You know, like, I sound Irish and I'm pissing Scottish people off, (laughs) etc. So I've made the decision not to do it. Can't make them all happy. Um, So this is a Scottish castle in Angus. And it's home of the Strathmore Earls. 
And legend has it that this is the castle in which Macbeth was killed. <gasps> oh, no. By a man not of woman born. Spoilers. Spoilers. It's a C-section. It's a C-section. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And then some places say maybe it's the place where Malcolm was murdered. Something to do with Macbeth. We're pretty sure. Somewhere. Yeah. Now, the castle was built around the 11th century, and some people date this legend back as far as the stones themselves. What's the legend? The legend is that there was a monster at Glarm's castle. <gasps> Maybe not like a monster proper, but at least some kind of curse. Something bad. Something wicked this way comes. And in addition to whatever the contents of the castle might have been, there was an equally mysterious and gossip-worthy location that it was kept in. The attic? The secret room. <gasps> Castles don't have attics. <laughs> I guess. Yes, they could. Folks have long associated the monster of Glom's with the secret chamber inside Glom's castle. The key to the secret chamber and the secret held within has always only been known to three individuals. The current Earl of Strathmore, his heir, and the steward of Glom's castle. So did you call the current Earl and ask? There are going to be some really weird long distance charges. Samantha, what did I tell you about that? I ordered a pizza. <laughs> From Scotland? From Angus, Scotland, yes. When's it arriving? March. Did you get the haggis? I did. Good. It's going to your office. It's going to smell so bad. Now, there's a legend that the first Earl of Strathmore, Earl Patey, might be the contents of the secret room. Really? Yes. According to legend, he challenged the devil to a card game, and the devil won. And he was walled up inside the secret room, and you can still hear him scratching and shuffling playing cards and all manner of obscenity spewing out of his angry, earlish mouth. That's creepy. Yeah. If you were to hear it. And then some say that it's members of the Ogilvy clan who sought refuge for the night and were given a place to stay. But instead of being a kind, hospitable host, the Earl at that time locked them away and they starved and died while gnawing the flesh from their arms. These gods go all the way. Yeah, they do. They are the only people that I feel like are as bleak and like, dark as southerners like they get southern gothic but they don't have to be southern <laughs> scottish gothic mm -hmm. so he had to later have the room walled up instead of moving their bodies because it would have shown that he did this and broken a truce and all of the stuff and so you can still hear them in there he has supposedly gnawing on their arms so between the 1840s and 1905 one of the people who wrote about this publicly was the 13th earl of strathmore claude bowes lyon who told a friend if you could ever guess the nature of this castle's secret, you would get down on your knees and thank God it was not yours. Thank God it's not yours. Now the heir to the same Earl, Claude, refused to be told the secret of the chamber. And some of the family do still insist that it's real. So according to the legend, the Earl, his heir, and his steward are the only people who are allowed to know where the chamber is located and what's inside of it. And the secret is passed down on the 21st birthday of the heir. Sir Walter Scott spent a night in the castle in 1790. And he wrote, I must own, as I heard door after door shut after my conductor had retired, 
I began to consider myself as too far from the living and somewhat too near the dead. He went on to state that Gomes was said to hide a secret room that was added in the 15th century, where violence was seldom far away, and its location was only known to the earl, his steward, and his heir. Hmm. This is a very old idea. Right. Now, there are some accounts of an unknown prisoner being brought to the castle beginning in the 1840s. In 1908, an account has it, the mystery was told to the present writer some 60 years ago, when he was a boy. It made a great impression upon him. The story was, and is, that in the castle of Gloms there is a secret chamber, and in this chamber is confined a monster, who is the rightful heir to the title and the property, but who is so unpresentable that it is necessary to keep him out of sight, and it out of his possession. So they think it's one of the heirs. Yes. A child that was born with some sort of medical condition. Correct. Now, one theory about the occupant is that he was the heir to the 11th Earl, or possibly his son, and he was so deformed that he could never be out allowed out in public. This may seem very far-fetched, but it's documented that after the First World War, Catherine and Nerissa Bowes Lyon, who are both cousins of the present queen, were of born... Queen, of Queen Elizabeth. QE2, yes, ma'am were mentally disabled from birth and they both spent their lives locked away in homes and hospitals and ignored by their own family. This is a story that's come out kind of recently. It's kind of the Rosemary Kennedy of England. Yeah. Yeah. So what's in there? What's in there? Do we know? Well, a story dating to about 1865 says that a workman at the castle unexpectedly came upon the door that opened into a long passage. Don't open it. Venturing in. (laughs) No. The man saw something at the far end of the corridor. Don't go in, man. On reporting the circumstances to the clerk of works, was pressingly encouraged to immigrate to Australia. His passage was paid for by an anxious earl. Really? Other 19th century accounts referred to the monster as a human toad. Well, that's just not nice. Well, we just did, monkey boy. None of these are going to be nice. (laughs) James Wentworth Day spent time interviewing people in the family for a history he was writing, and he heard the legend of a monster who was born into the family. He was their heir, a creature fearful to behold. It was always impossible to allow this deformed caricature of humanity to be seen, even by their friends. His chest was an enormous barrel, hairy as a doormat. His head ran straight into his shoulders, and his arms and legs were toy-like. But, however warped and twisted his body, The child had to be reared to manhood and kept safe and occasionally exercised. This job was given to the factor or the steward. So he had to be taken on walks. Right. Oh my God. There are records of members of the family alluding to the secret. The Bishop of Brechen, who is a great friend of the house, felt a strange sadness so deeply that he went to Lord Strathmore and said, how having heard the strange secret which oppressed him, he could not keep entreating him to make use of his services as an ecclesiastic. Lord Strathmore was so deeply moved, he thanked him, but in his most unfortunate position, no one could ever help him. So the bishop went and kind of offered help? Yes, he was like, I can tell you're really down. I can tell you're really depressed, and I know that you're hiding a secret. Confess, my child. You know, that's what I'm here for. I'm doing my ecclesiastic duty. And he's like, it doesn't matter because no one can ever help me. Lady Strathmore once confessed to Mr. Ralston, 
her great anxiety to unravel the mystery. He looked earnestly at her and said very gravely, Lady Strathmore, it is fortunate that you do not know it and can never know it. For if you did, you would not be a happy woman. Oh, wow. That is ominous and I'm sure sparked her curiosity even more. So Earl Claude's heir noted the terrible change that came over his father after he was told the family secret and declined to be initiated himself. At this point, it would appear that the family lawyer was also brought into the circle of trust, the cone of silence. And he had been told in order to help that dude get to Australia. Australia. Yeah. He was like, you're going freely or in chains. You pick. I can easily forge some documents and say that you stole a handkerchief. That was one of, the, one of the crimes. Did you learn that from a cork? I learned it from the dollop, but I've also seen it on a cork. So that's two sources. Must be true. I'm being told, Rumbold recorded, that the time had come for him to be initiated. He is said to have inquired whether the secret was not in the safekeeping of three persons as prescribed. On this being admitted, he had then replied that his immediate initiation not being indispensable, he preferred to wait until it should become so. So he's saying like, oh, the lawyer knows you don't need me. Right? Right? So he found a loophole. He did. Clever Earl. Rose, Lady Granville, another of Wentworth Day's informants, and aunt to Elizabeth II, said that she had been born in this castle. And asked what she knew of the story, she said she, quote, looked serious, was silent for a moment, and then said, we were never allowed to talk about it when we were children. Our parents forbade us even discuss the matter or ask any questions about it. My father and grandfather refused absolutely to discuss it. So I guess the secret of Glam's castle will forever be kept by three people. Unless one of them finds a loophole. <laughs> so, you know, whenever you mentioned that the bishop came by, you know, I kind of thought that he might be offering to take the child in. Like he knew about it, but I guess he didn't. I think he'd heard rumblings right rumors but you know in the past people like monasteries and convents and things like that would take, take in people that had mental disability or physical disability and give them a place to live and work things like that right that's how bedlam got started right and so with that with the poor houses and the insane asylums that we talked about on that episode is where a lot of these people were hidden away so I have a hard time with this legend. I have a hard time with the idea that these people were just like kept chained up in houses because there were other places they could go and infant mortality rates were high and you could just say, mm, lost the baby. And it's not like people are going to quiz you about it. But in this case, I think that it's one ounce more credible Why than the limp mansion because of the primogeniture rules or practices in in England especially but you know the first son inherited all of it and it's possible like this kid wasn't going to demand it maybe like if he didn't have the mental faculties but he could have been used as a pawn like by an uncle by a you know a challenger he could have been like instated and just locked back up after they kicked him out or whatever. Like, it, it could have been right. a, yeah, a I mean, little have, more complicated. plenty of stories about young children or children with disabilities being used by royalty. Well, I think of Lady Jane Grey, you know, just as an example. But there, or, you know, the story of the man in the iron mask, basically, 
you know, he existed because they were twins. That's another episode. But it was all about inheritance. And so I guess there's like a little bit more to lose. And maybe this is something that didn't show up right away. And people got attached and they didn't, you know, or whatever the case was. Because of the complicated inheritance issues, I, I find it just a sousant more credible. I'm going to throw something else in there, too. What's that? Maybe they didn't want to send their child away. Because if you think about the hard conditions that Mm -hmm. we've described at some of these places, and they would have known about that. Yeah. You know, maybe they thought this was the best option. Maybe they thought it was more humane. Yeah. Or maybe it was the dude playing cards with the devil. That's probably what it was. Okay. So let us trek. Let's get in the Jeep. We're going to go. Yeah, we're going to go down the Grand Trunk Road between Lahore and Islamabad in Pakistan and come to the city of Gujarat. Now, this city is location of a shrine to a 17th century Sufi saint by the name of Shuadullah. Now, for at least 100 years, but maybe for centuries, it has been a place that's inhabited by Chuas, or the rat people. What? Are we just going to name, like, we've had Toad Boy and Monkey Boy, and now we're having rat people. We're going to try to be as terrible as possible. Like, this is, this is offensive. So now, they look like rats. And we'll get there. Okay. So now, even today, hundreds of people go to this shrine bringing offerings, chickens, monkeys, peacocks, cage doves, sacks of freshly killed goats. Are these all things we're calling people? Or No, these are actual, okay. actual offerings. You know, all used for food to feed the chuas and the others who serve there. Vendors still sell tiny tin cutouts in the shapes of whole bodies or feet or hands or hearts. And these will be carried into the temple to be placed along with money in the collection box. Now, these chuas or rat people do, you know, have a very specific physical appearance. So, wait, this is a real thing. Oh, this is a real thing. Do they, like, groom themselves a certain way? And therefore, just like, they all have top knots and sweatpants. No, they have true physical deformity of the face where they have smaller heads, a sloping forehead, and kind of a narrow face. So they kind of have this like rodent quality to their appearance. Why? Well. Why? (laughs) It's a good question. We'll get there. Okay. So inside the shrine where these chuas live, there's a wall of glittering multicolored glass. Which behind is the grave of the Shah Dula under a velvet covering. So this 17th century saint settled there and is credited with various buildings, charitable works, teaching, and counseling. Mm-hmm. He's said to have cared for wild creatures and sometimes women seeking a treatment for infertility would come hoping that the holy man would pray for them. So you got your saint. You got your hagiography. I'm guessing that he's going to have some miracles. I'm guessing that have to do with fertility. Right, right. And he's going to help women get pregnant. Yes. And so the myth goes several different ways. Okay. Sometimes it's just that the first of the children born after the prayers was born a Chua. Okay. But it was like that unclogged the pipes and then they could have as many as they wanted kind of thing. Right. Okay. So, and people say that the Chuas that were born later were born due to the pregnant mothers seeing the Chuas at the temple. Ah, uh, they marked the baby. Right, and that's a very, very, very common folk belief throughout the world. 
Including your grandmother. Yeah, family legend has it that one day she was out in her yard picking strawberries while she was pregnant, and she saw a snake and got scared, and she fell and hurt her ankle and grabbed it. And so when the baby was born, she had a strawberry-shaped birthmark on her ankle as a record of the trauma that my great-grandmother endured, Clara Elifair. That's very accurate. Yes, science. And so some people say that you would have to donate this chua to the temple to serve, and then the rest of your children would not have the same deformity. That's a really steep price of admission. Your firstborn child. Like, that is some, like, fairy tale shit. Yeah. And also, you know, if that part were true, there would be thousands and thousands of them. Because so many people go there. Yes. Now, some people say that Shadula is punishing parents by making them have these children if they were, you know, kind of like sinners. They were bad people, and they came seeking his help. This is his backhanded revenge. But people started to see the... People began to think of these children as a source of prayer who can fulfill their wishes or punish them. Okay, so they believe that these children were endowed with magical qualities. Yeah, well, and that... Or spiritual, probably a better word. Right, and you know, that give to the poor. Mm. That's a basic tenet of Islam. Well, and it's also like incredibly widespread belief that the beggar's curse is a thing. Right, we talked about that, and... So by not giving to someone in need, you, they can curse you. Right. Same thing here. One person interviewed at Darbar was a villager, and he told them that he felt sad when he used to see the Chuas begging. He used to go begging in different villages near to Gujarat, and everyone gave them money because people are afraid of the Chuas' anger, thinking if they get angry, then Allah will also be angry with them. He said for the last five years, he's never seen any Chuas begging on the roads. That's unusual. Yeah. And so we can go way, way back to British colonialism. Because everyone wants to do that. And you do have writings about these chuas, with them saying in the late 1800s that they had the resemblance of the heads of Aztecs. Interesting. Those other brown people we conquered, you know, you know. Oh, the British didn't conquer them. Eventually. But one writer at the time described three of these children saying that they resembled other children he'd seen in lunatic asylums in Europe. So as far back as 1904, it was reported in the Punjab Gazetteer that some parents were compressing the heads in infancy to send them to the shrine. Why? Saying (laughs) they used to put an iron cap on children and bring them to his shrine so they can help with the bagging and getting money. So these are man-made, ancient Egyptians bound heads, I guess, maybe, I don't... Well, so that's that's a little different. So these children have something called microcephaly. And so that's whenever the head, the actual skull, the cranial vault is small. Mm -hmm. And the brain inside is small as well, because what makes the cranial vault grow is the brain growth. Okay. And so they were saying that they are purposefully keeping these skulls bound mm-hmm. in order to create chuas. So, like other cultures did head binding as well. Uh, you, know, you can think of the, they mentioned the Aztecs, like the Mayans and the Incans that did head binding and they get that elongated skull, right? Mm-hmm. What people find and say is like an alien skull. Yeah, it's cute. I like when people do that. 
Or you can think of the Native Americans, such as uh, the Choctaw, who would use a board Mm -hmm. and flatten the back of the head of the infants. And so those are all things that do not cause damage to the brain. Right, because they wouldn't keep doing it if it did. Well, that's a good reason, yeah. (laughs) They'd be like, hey, they don't do so well and they die and stuff. Let's not anymore. And people would say, good thought, and go on with their life not binding heads. Right, and so the skull having an odd shape like that, but still having a large cranial vault allows the brain to grow. Right, it still has the capacity. Right, and so... The actual binding to create a microcephalic person is pretty much biologically impossible. Okay. Because if you were to do that, first you'd have to keep the skull bound with like an iron pot or whatever for a long time, like months to years. And this would cause the brain to not only not grow appropriately, but it would start to grow downward. Which seems bad. Yeah, so it would compress the spine, the lower brain, and you would die. Okay. And you can you can see this now in conditions where the skull bones do fuse too early. It's called craniosynostosis. Okay. And that does cause this kind of fatal problem if it starts very early on. And now you'll have a neurosurgeon repair it. So when we see this occur naturally, it is fatal. So doing it artificially would probably also be fatal. Fair assumption. Like that's just math. So if it's not parents creating chewas so that they can go beg for money and it's not a curse for sin and it's not a price of admission for fertility. Well, we can't completely say it's not a curse from sin. I mean, fine. Fair. So there are genetic disorders that cause microcephaly. Okay. That cause the brain to not grow appropriately and thus cause the skull to not grow appropriately. And these are conditions in which the children who are born with it can mature into into adulthood. They will grow to adulthood, but they will have the physical deformities of the skull. Mm-hmm. And they will also have severe mental disorders. Okay. And some of the genetic and biochemical causes of microcephaly have been identified. And something to point out is that if it were a genetic condition, within in Pakistan, there is a high amount of what's called consanguinity, also known as marrying your cousin. Okay. So marrying a close Fine. relative. Fine. Yeah, so makes if sense. you were to have... An autosomal recessive trait. So, remember your Punnett square? You're doing your P's. I do remember my Punnett square. So, if you have people that are more closely related, it's more likely that you'll have an autosomal recessive disorder. Expressed. Yes, because you have to have it carried by both parents. Okay. So, that's, that just makes sense as far as population and why it would occur. Right, because in Pakistan, about 60% of marriages are between first cousins. Okay. Microcephaly can also be caused by other external problems like toxic chemicals, drugs, alcohol, infections, such as like CMV, rubella, varicella, Zika virus. Mm-hmm. You hear about all the time now. So, it's possible that the area is also endemic with these infections or these exposures so it may be just an environmental thing it could be now one other idea i had was it could be related to something called alpha thalassemia 
And this is a genetic disorder that's related to kind of how the hemoglobin in your red blood cells works and is formed. And there are various types you can get. There's four different types, depending on how many of the genes you get. Okay. So in Southeast Asia and Mediterranean populations, you have some of the more severe forms being more common. About 300 to 400,000 severely affected infants are born every year. Wow. More than 95% whom are Asian, Indian, or Middle Eastern descent. And the carrier rate is between 60 and 80% in parts of Saudi Arabia, India, and other countries in that area. Okay. And there's also another disorder called X-linked alpha-thalassemia, which results in these sort of facial dysmorphisms and developmental delay, with 90% of them having skeletal abnormalities and 75% of them having this microcephaly, where they have upswept frontal hairlines, folded over eyelids, flat nasal bridges, and small triangular upturned noses, as well as everted lower lips. So who knows? No one's gone down a serious genetic testing on these kids or even adults because nowadays they don't stay at the temple. What do you mean? So it was outlawed by the Pakistan government because they were worried that there was abuse, maybe not in creating them, but by people taking them and using them for begging. Okay. So what was the like max population of people with this specific disorder or appearance? Well, it's hard to say. It's hard to say, but there were definitely reports of hundreds being wow. in the area. Yeah. But it's also important to point out that they would come from all over Pakistan. It was just like the place where you brought people like this. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So it could be, you know, exposure. It could be a genetic disorder. But in whatever way there was, they definitely devised a way to take care of these kids. Mm-hmm. And especially in the beginning, it most likely was a very charitable act. Somewhere they could go, they could work, and they could be provided for by the people from the community coming and sending offerings and, you know, kind of having this reverence for them. Do you think they were being exploited at the time that it was outlawed? I think that it's very possible that people were exploiting them. So now what happened to them? Well, now sometimes they're seen begging in the area. But not associated with the temple any longer. Right. There was one report I read that there was one there and she was very old. She'd been there Mm. for a very long time. But they don't take any new ones in, not officially. And do you think they're better off? Now? Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. I think that they probably were better off back in the day. Mm-hmm. You know, back in the day when this kind of started and it was more of a charitable event. And it's just hard to say now. I find it incredibly interesting. This entire population of people that I have, you know, assigned this narrative at birth. Right. And already have like so much history. And it's really strange that them being in public spurred these fears of, like, exploitation and abuse. Yes. People were worried they were being abused. They were taking these kind of defenseless kids and using them and training them to be beggars. Because normally when people get very nervous about abuse is when kids are hidden away. And you don't see the kids as much as you used to or things like that. It's, like, normally when they're out of public view that people start to, to worry Right, that's when the community might start to talk and wonder if that kid's okay. Has he been sick? 
I wonder why they're not out anymore. I wonder if they're having problems at home. Well, you could speculate, you could gossip, or you could pitch a movie. Oh, God. <laughs> so as I was researching this, this episode, I came upon a film released in 2016 entitled The Disappointments Room. How did I not hear about this? Because all of their reviews are like, lives up to its name. Meh, meh, meh. It's clever. It I mean, is. You got to hit the softballs. <laughs> you got to hit the softballs. You're right. You do. You do. So let's start by looking at like a little synopsis of this of this picture. Wonderful. Dana, open parentheses, Kate Beckinsale, close parentheses. Her husband, David, no parentheses. Aww. It's a bad sign already, right? So and their five-year-old son, Lucas, start a new life after moving from the hustle and bustle of Brooklyn, New York, to a stately old manor in the quiet countryside. After settling in, Dana starts to experience terrifying visions and dreams that she cannot explain. Mystery grows when she stumbles upon a secret room in the attic. After finding the key and unlocking the door, Dana discovers the dark history of the family that lived there in the 19th century. (gasps) Oh no. Is this like a creepypasta or is this based on a... Joyce Carol Oates story? What is this? It came from the most terrifying place in American culture today. What? HGTV. Oh, that is terrifying. (laughs) You can't be that good looking and remodel a house at the same time. But you can, bro. Look, bro. Bro. My ass is sweaty. (laughs) Yeah. An old (laughs) ripped up shirt when I'm working like that. So... The story that this is based on comes from home and garden television program, If Walls Could Talk. Okay, I can see pitching that idea. <laughs> okay, yeah, me too, actually. When which a chipper television host, this is where they go, they go horribly it's so wrong. Chipper. So chipper. Far too chipper. So doctor's office waiting room. <laughs> I just get Nick Jr. on. Like my entire pregnancy, I was like, I cannot believe home and garden television exists because it's all that was on in the OB's waiting room. <laughs> On this program, it is told that in the attic area of a home in Rhode Island... Oh, wait. Can I, can I do it? In an attic area of a home in Rhode Island in the town of West Warwick. Like that? Yeah. The homeowners discovered something that left them scratching their noggins. When they discover this weird room in the attic, through a little idle speculation and the help of a gossipy old lady... The homeowner comes to conclude that this is a, quote, disappointments room. And she's sure that this is the place where an unfortunate, probably deformed and disabled child was kept by a cruel former owner of the home. Okay, that is terrifying and very disturbing. I have my doubts. So they first start out by claiming that it's a 100-year-old colonial which if it was 100 years old would not be a colonial. But anyway, let's move on. Lori Dumas bought the home in 1995. Now, she continually says that the home was built in 1857, but my research clearly shows that it was built in 1858. She's striking out already. And a neighbor tells her that she lives in Judge Carpenter's home. Or maybe the neighbor just said the judge's home. But it's near a street called Carpenter Court, which is just a hop, skip, and a slippery slope away from the conclusion that Judge Carpenter was the owner of the home. I love a slippery slope. I do too. Now she surmises that he must have been very wealthy because 
His home was built with fine lumber and stained glass. However, as we have discussed, the home was built in 1858, and Judge Carpenter, who was a real person, and we will become more acquainted with him shortly, was born in 1866. It seems very unlikely that he was responsible for the decorating choices made in this home. I could see that. Okay. (laughs) So when they first get there, her then boyfriend and later husband Jeff comes over to the house. Jeff is super rad. He's super rad, dude. He's got a ponytail and the curiosity of a good old fashioned bro. So he goes down to the basement to nose around and he discovers like an elevated cupboard in the basement. And inside he finds a block like with letters on it, you know, like kids play with. Okay. A kid's block from a former owner. Spooky. (laughs) Spooky. Now, they never went in the attic before he moved in. But when he moved in, he decided because he's a rad dude with a ponytail that he was going to convert the little storage room at the end of the attic into a recording studio. A band's going to take off soon. Can yeah. live here for a few more years. Totally, totally Jeff. His name's actually Jeff. Like, that's what I would have reached for. But he, like, had big plans. There was even going to be a light that said recording when he was recording in there. That is cool. I wish we had one. But they start cleaning it out, and they notice some really strange things about this room. The floor was metal, and the doorknob only worked from the outside. Yeah, that, that's a little odd. And there's a deadbolt on it. Okay, like in our old haunted house we've talked about that we lived in. There were locks. There were locks on the outside. Of bedrooms. Yeah. Not exterior doors. We always thought that was creepy. We did. But we never went on HGTV and said things about a real person. But whatever. As we disparage Jeff's character. I'm not going to say he deserves it because he may be a very fine person, but he made a bad choice here. (laughs) Okay, so whatever has happened here, why ever there might be this deadbolt and this metal flooring, I mean, it leads to the logical conclusion that undoubtedly, totally, absolutely for sure, this was used to hold someone prisoner. Do they find like chains and shackles? Well, no, there are two large dormer windows on the outward facing wall that can clearly be seen through from the street. They face the street. Okay. And there are also windows on the interior wall of the place, like where it meets the attic. Definitely a cell. Definitely a top secret cell. We will address this more later. She then explains that a library patron... Oh, wait. Did I not tell you? She's a librarian? She is a librarian. I have the highest respect for librarians. I do, too. She's a research professional. Right. So this is all going to be legit AF. I'm sure. I got very angry by the end of this five minute clip. (laughs) So she's talking about this weird room she's found in her house and how she just has a weird feeling about it, et cetera, et cetera. And this woman comes up and like pats her hand and is like, you have a disappointments room, which in the South makes sense. In Rhode Island, that seems weird. But anyway, I digress. And so she says that disappointment rooms were commonplace. Back in the 19th century. Everybody had them. Historically, she says, the rooms were used to house children that homeowners wanted to hide from public view. Quote, they would keep them a secret from the rest of the world. So they hid them away in the rooms up on their third floors, which is just unbelievable. Sure is. I bet this movie had a big based on a true story title card. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, and then... Lori had to find out more about her home's sad history. But all she had to go on is what her neighbor told her. That a judge named Carpenter once lived there. 
Thank you, helpful television host man. You're welcome. Next on HGTV, watch this extremely attractive couple remodel a mobile home. Wait, is it not coming on? Is it not coming on? You need to watch 10 more minutes of commercials. No, I don't want to. Download the new Food Network app. Okay, so she starts doing some research. Right, because she's a librarian. I like librarians. Wait. Big fan. Also the homeowner. She could walk up to the tax assessor's office and request a chain of title document like that. Like, just in a second, she could do it. Okay, so she does that. No, she doesn't. Oh, okay. I could not do that, because I do not live in West Warwick, Rhode Island. Nor do I own the home. Did you buy a house? I may have ordered a pizza and bought a house. (laughs) Is it going to be delivered to Rhode Island? No, it's being delivered to your office. I already told you. (laughs) I don't think a pediatric office with a disappointments room would be a good idea. (laughs) Or it's the best idea ever. Because the kids are bad. You send them in there. Your parents are very disappointed and you go to the room. <laughs> so she looks up a cemetery database and, okay. and finds his grave, also known as Googling on find a grave. And then she finds that he's buried in the area, which makes sense. And then she goes to the cemetery and looks at the monument and discovers that a full quarter of the monument has a big plaque dedicated to Ruth, a child who lived from 1895 to 1900. Child of... Job and Francis Carpenter. So that must be Judge Carpenter's daughter that he sealed away. Right, and then made a giant monument to on his grave and associated his name with hers. Cool. Yeah, we're on board. This makes no sense, but we'll keep going. So then she decides to go through old newspapers, which, again, she has access to because she's a librarian. And she notices that the judge, this, you know, elected official, prominent citizen, is in the paper all the time. Crazy. But his daughter, who is not yet even of school age at the time that she dies, just doesn't get half the press he does. Definitely being held captive. She finds this very suspicious. I mean, is she in the paper at all? Well, there is an obituary, and she says it's only a brief mention of her death. And I found the obituary, and I will read it to you now. The little six-year-old daughter of Judge Carpenter of Centerville has been taken away, and it has cast a shadow over this section of the country. One consoling thought is there is a light in the window to beckon her parents and relatives on, and her little face will be at the gates ajar to welcome them when they leave the world of care and go to their better land. A light in the window. Evidence. No. (laughs) It's a write-up in the paper about her death, and people are sad about it, as in the public. Like everyone that saw her and knew her. Yeah, but you're right. It's only a brief write-up. But, I mean, that was common at that time. It would just be a short little write-up. You're not going to have a front-page story. I mean, I have recently looked at a lot of obituaries and a lot of birth notices, etc., in small-town newspapers, and they're just not as substantial for children. They just don't get the ink that an adult does. It appeared that the judge was an ambitious man with an eye towards politics. The couple speculate that Judge Carpenter used the disappointments room to hide his disabled daughter Ruth from the outside world. Let me remind you that this is a real person who still has relatives living in the area. Cool. Cool. So what did they do? What did they do after they found out all this information? Jeff made it a rad recording studio, man. The reverb off that metal is awesome. Just kidding. They've turned it into a shrine. Interesting choice. Yes, they have turned it into a shrine complete with like stuffed animals and dolls and 
things. So they think they're being nice to, like, is, do they think there's a ghost there? They think Ruth is in the house with them, and oh. she's a regular presence in the home, and she doesn't bother them at all, and they're writing a wrong. Oh, okay. So, no. This is bullshit. No, 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 no. It's so bullshit. Okay. I feel really bad for the Carpenter family. They have had their relative, I guess, great, great uncle and family's name dragged through the mud by the lakes of Laurie Dumas, Ponytail Jeff, Kate Beckinsale, who I've never forgiven for Van Helsing. You shouldn't. And Gerald McRaney of Major Dad fame. Oh, that's a great film. It's the guy that plays the judge. This librarian who obviously does less than fastidious historical research. Okay, so the home was obviously not built by Judge Carpenter since he was not alive. Fair. Who built it? From what I have been able to surmise, the home was built by a man named Jay, or I think John Green, in 1858. And then it was inherited by a man whose last name was Hughes. And then it was purchased by Casey B. Tyler in 1870. The address is listed as High Street in Centerville Village in Warwick Town. And Casey and his wife, Betsy, lived in the home until his death in 1899, at which time his estate went into probate. Because he died with no heir and he was intestate, it had to all be sorted out after he died. Now, like the future resident of the home, Casey was a lawyer and a judge. Oh, okay. He was also a merchant. He owned a very profitable dry goods store. There's also a very lengthy story of a man named Hugog who apparently has some relationship with H.P. Lovecraft, who embezzled a bunch of money and made him lose $10,000. But anyway, he was a known bibliophile who helped start a library. He owned the newspaper in town and was an armchair historian who actually wrote up a history of the area. And he was a really big deal, like very prominent citizen. Now, when he his estate went into probate, some interesting notes on that. Our judge, Carpenter at the time was serving as a notary public in addition to his duties as a solicitor. And he actually did all the notarizing for Casey Tyler's estate. By the time the estate was settled and all those who had claims like printers who had kept printing his newspaper without getting their money because they didn't realize he was dead because no one wrote it up or sent them a note. You know, he was a single dude. Our, our carpenter, had become probate judge. Okay. So we have two judges that have lived in the house. Right. And so on this particular estate, on Casey's estate, Carpenter is now the probate judge. So he has first dibs on the house. If we examine the 1900 census, this is the year that Ruth died, and it should provide us some very interesting clues about what's going on in the lives of these people. And we will find that Job his wife, Frances, and their five-year-old daughter, Ruth, do appear, living as a family unit in Warwick Town. But they live in a home that they rent, not a home that they own. So I don't think it's likely that they've constructed any torture rooms. That would break the lease. So the census was taken on the 22nd of June in 1900. Ruth died in November. In March 1901, the estate of Tyler was still in probate. It was still being haggled over and people, like they had kicked off the assessors and brought in new people and it was a whole thing really dry reading but no one's living in his house his estate is still floating up in the air so we know that ruth died in 1900 and we know that this estate and this home were still in probate in 1901 it seems very unlikely that ruth ever lived there 
Yeah, definitely. The numbers don't line up. Now, Judge Carter died in 1906, and Francis died in 1918. That's his wife. Yes. And the 1910 census shows Francis living alone at the home on Warwick Avenue. And at the time, she was a 39-year-old widow who had given birth to three children and had zero living children. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, so let's drag her name through the mud and have her be known as a bad mother for all eternity. So she lost three kids and her husband in a short period of time. In six years. Yeah. He died in 1906. Well, that's a tragic story. It's really sad. And like at the time that the 1900 census was taken, she'd only had one child. So it means after Ruth died, they tried two more times and lost both children. So what about the room? I mean, what is it? What could it be? Okay, so like, let's take it bit by bit. Let's talk about the elevated cupboard in the basement. It's probably used for coal storage to keep it off the ground because it's an unfinished basement. Most likely. Sorry. And the block does not look Victorian or mid-century, mid-19th century. It doesn't matter. It's a block. If you had a kid living in the house. Well, if she was locked in the top floor, like she's going to go to the basement and hide a block anyway. Right. But people, other people have lived there for the last hundred years. Fine. Blocks is nothing. Unless it had someone's name carved in it. So metal flooring, fireproofing, fireproofing was all the rage. If you read about any construction done at this time period, because of things like Barnum's Museum burning down, libraries, places where lots of books were kept especially. People were building things to be fireproof. You'll see that in a lot of like federal buildings, etc. They were not doing it especially well. They were just using non-combustible materials. And one of the things that would have been done is metal flooring. So that's a possibility. Definitely. I'll throw that out there. It was also used commonly in warehouses or mills. And Kent County, where this place is, Kent County, Rhode Island, is kind of like the mill capital of that area. Like they have cotton mills and all kinds of mills, mills and mills and mills. Like if you go look at their register of historic places, you will find 50 bajillion mills. So why would they fireproof this one room? Fair. Maybe Tyler did it. I can see that. They lived there for 20 years. So maybe he did it because he had all these antique books there are lots of records of him like donating them to the rhode island historical society he started a library in his write-up in like his family genealogy it said like we will remember him for his books so maybe maybe he did it to keep his books from burning in case of a house fire i don't know maybe carpenter did it carpenter lost a bunch of money and um his assets when he had a box factory catch fire and his insurance didn't cover it so maybe he was just paranoid And put his valuables in there. Even more disgusting thought, in addition to serving as like town solicitor, notary public, census taker, probate judge, etc., etc., Job Carpenter also served as the town coroner. Ew. Ew. (laughs) Then Betsy is an interesting character. Betsy is Tyler, Casey Tyler's wife. And they never had any children. They say after he lost $10,000 to Hugog... She was never the same, and she was very sickly and in bed all the time. So maybe they took in this room as like a way for her to, you know, kind of have light all around her because it would have gotten light kind of from every side, and it was up where she could see what was going on on the street and people walking by. Maybe that's it. But let's read Betsy's obituary because it's very interesting. Oh, really? It really is. Say something about a lost child. Nah. In memoriam. 
Betsy M. Tyler, beloved wife of KCB Tyler, whose transition took place at her home in Centerville on December 3, 1887, was born in Moosup Valley in Foster, May 4, 1821. She was the daughter of Esther and Joseph Jinks. Her mother, Esther Tyler Jinks, was born in Moosup Valley, and she passed a higher life on April 29, 1867. Her father, Joseph Jinks, was born in Smithfield, November 22nd, and passed into higher life on August 12, 1827, in his 51st year. His father was the governor of Rhode Island. Betsy M. Jinks married Casey B. Tyler of Foster in August of 1843. They commenced housekeeping in Moosup Valley and lived there until 1855 when they moved to Clayville and lived until 1869 and then lost about $10,000 through the rascality of a pretended friend, their hard earnings of more than 20 years, the loss of which caused her grief as long as she had any attachment for earth life. In 1870, they moved to Centerville in Warwick, where she lived until being passed to the spirit world childless. She was a devoted wife, a faithful housekeeper, and though always feeble in health, she had a strong mind and accomplished a large amount of work. She was always a great reader, and for the last 20 years of her earth life, she has devoted much of her time to reading progressive works, of which she has a large supply. She was firm in the belief of an immediate consciousness in a future life, and of spirit communication with earthly friends under proper conditions. She hoped and firmly believed that immediately after the spirit left the body, that she should see and know who was around, and all that was done about her body. She was always in feeble health. But for the last three years, her body has been gradually wearing away. But her mind was clear and strong, and she passed into the higher life after being confined to her bed only two days. For years, she has had pleasant and instructive communications with her spirit friends, which was her greatest comfort in her lingering sickness, and which she much enjoyed to the end of her earth life. For the last few hours of her earth life, she frequently and earnestly called for her mother to come and take her from her sufferings. She said that she plainly saw her and asked others why they could not see her. At last, she said plaintively, with a smile on her face, she is coming, and the breath left her mortal body without a struggle. She has since communicated with her husband and says she had her wish that her mother took her off to the spirit world and that she saw and knew all that was around her. And although she had anticipated a glorious and anticipated glorious and beautiful things in the future life, the realities are far behind her earthly imagination. Spiritual world. Oh. Past the earthly life. Oh, many communications with her spirit friends. She was a spiritualist. Hot damn. We're on to something now. Woo. Okay. So, yes, this is the language of spiritualism, which the timing Perfect. and the location. Perfect. All right. And this write-up, I mean, come on. She communicated with spirit friends. She called to her mother. Like, she communicated with her husband. She's deep in it. Oh, yeah. And so I have a theory about this room, if you want to get all creepy. Besides the coroner thing. That's gross. Yeah. Not creepy. Maybe they did seances in the attic. Because it's like a big finished area. It's just the two of them in the house, right? And this could have been the ultimate spirit cabinet. You could even hear the spirit knocks really well. Right? The metal floor. Right. And you have those windows so people can like see the apparitions, like if it's dark, you know, ah. like there's not a, a doorknob on the inside and you can lock her in there. And, you know, that's perfect. It's exactly what you want in a spirit cabinet. Hmm. You know, like we've mentioned spirit cabinets before. It's where mediums would go during seances. 
and they'd like shut them in there and all kinds of weird stuff would pop out of the cabinet. Noises. Yeah. And they'd be bound up in there and supposedly, you know, they couldn't possibly be the ones doing it and whatever. So if she's really that deep in spiritualism, like maybe it's just like her spirit cabinet. And I love that idea. That's a fun idea. I mean, you don't know that a spiritualist lived in the house and not think that maybe it was a spirit cabinet. It's possible. It's as possible as anything else except Lori's theory, which is categorically impossible. So what's up with the doorknob? I hate to tell you this, but there's a large circular groove around the doorknob or where it should be on the inside. It looks like something rotated there. So there was a doorknob. There was a doorknob. The handle is still there. It's still in in the appropriate location. It looks like a big ornamental thing, like a... So like the doorknob that fell off of our haunted house. <laughs> yes, like all the time. Or the door that opened by itself only only when I walked down the hall. Yes, but that's why there were probably locks there. Yeah. And so I assume what happened with that doorknob is that there was some big ornate thing there that was kind of impractical that got knocked off and lost and never replaced because what the hell would anyone ever use this room for until 1995 when Lori comes in. Yeah, but then why is there a deadbolt inside the house? Oh, what was originally a door to the exterior? Why was a door to the exterior? Because it was an addition. What do you mean? Well, it's like the windows line up exactly with where the exterior windows are now. Oh, the interior window? Mm Mm-hmm. And so it looks like it was just bumped out, like to take in a balcony. Oh, and then on the interior wall where the windows are, door, there are shingles. There are shingles and a random window. That match up exactly with the facade of the exterior of the house. Well, that would explain a door. With a deadbolt and a window in it. So it makes sense that whenever the tilers or the carpenters or whoever added the room, they just kept the door that was there to begin with. Or maybe it was added on after 1918 because both of these couples didn't have children and probably didn't have use for an extra room on the third floor. But maybe they did. Never know. Never know. Got a seance room. Lori also says that this is on the register of local historic places, which if it is, I cannot find it. And I have looked. And I tried to find it because I thought there might be information about when the renovations were done. Because that's the kind of thing that goes in those really long PDF documents for every place on the register. Not there. So the room protrudes out into the attic where everything else is angled. Beams are exposed. Like the roof line is visible on the inside. Some of the attic was taken in, basically. And it is a square little box that has no business being there. Now there's another weird feature of the room which leads me to believe it's an addition and it's that the door does not sit flush with the floor nor does it extend all the way to the ceiling. Oh, okay. And this would make sense because the angle of the roof line would have, you know, come down but when they extended it out to make it a dormer because it's what they did, the top floor has a set of dormer windows, they had to change the pitch. And when they did that, it changed the way that the door met the ceiling. And whenever they were removed, whatever external weatherproof flooring would have been like on a deck or a balcony to make it suitable to be an inside room, it would have left a little gap between the floor and the doorway. So this addition that was added on, I would assume in plain sight of everyone that has windows facing the outside. Yes, this is the part of the house that faces the street. So if they were to take in a balcony to make a room, 
all of the neighbors would know it. The house's facade would visibly change. Even if they had worker elves come do it in one night while they were sleeping, everyone would know it was different. But more importantly, you would obviously see through the windows. Right. Anyone that was kept there. Yes. So the interior does look like the rest of the home. It has like angled wainscoting that kind of matches the same angles on the stairway. And the materials look very similar. And I would assume that this would put it later instead of earlier. Because it could mean one of two things. It's very meticulously matched. And it would lead me to think that it was either done at the same time as another major renovation or that someone was really, really proud of their historic home but needed a little storeroom for whatever purpose, murder probably, and decided to match the details. It was like a conscientious choice of some historical society lady. But maybe the the carpenters or the tilers were just very detail-oriented, always possible. And knowing the personalities of all of them, I can see the Tylers being that persnickety. Okay, so I mean, I think it's pretty obvious what this was. It was an addition added onto a house that may have been used for some sort of storage or they fireproofed it for other reasons or maybe even a seance room. All these weird, odd ideas, including possibly were or kept bodies. <laughs> but even though some of those are improbable, The story of the disappointment room is a disappointment. It's a disappointment. It is. And it really makes me sad that she sold it for a movie. And like, I feel I have mixed feelings about like running it down because like she is trying to raise money for Special Olympics with the story. That's nice. It is nice, but it's misguided. There are other ways she could raise money besides calling into question the integrity of people who actually existed in her immediate vicinity. I just, I have a hard time with the idea of like the disappointment room being a larger practice in general. Right. Because we've said, you know, I mean, like if you have money, you're going to send the kid away. And at this time, there were public hospitals as well in the United States. Yeah. And poor farms and poor houses and Mm -hmm. all of those things. And they, you know, it's horrible. And I'm not saying it's any more humane necessarily, but, you know, look at Rosemary Kennedy. You know, that's a prominent family that was disappointed with their child and lobotomized her and shipped her off. But, you know, we have so many things to do with children. We have poor houses. We have poor farms. We have orphanages. We have foundling hospitals. We have trains. We have planes. We have automobiles. We have the mail. One. (laughs) It makes so much less sense to me that they would have been, like, kept prisoner in their own home. And, you know, we talk a lot about all these historical ideas, these various things and places that, People purportedly did to their children with severe medical problems born with deformities. And sometimes they're called monster and they might be kept in the castle or called monkey boy and hidden away in the top of the house in a disappointment room like place. And we think of these as old stories. These are the old ghost stories that we tell. Before we were so civilized and had all this great medical knowledge. It's like once medicine arrives, it frees us of this, you know, these antiquated ideas and we can appreciate that this is not some curse that's been put on us because we were sinful. You know, we've moved into this new enlightened age and with the help of medical professionals, we can deal with it because they have come to fix it. Right. And and that is true for the most part. But yeah. I hate when you say for the most part. 
But I do have a story, and it's it is not for the faint of heart. I will tell you who should stop listening. Everyone. So a few years back, there was an article published. It was about a physician's time in the 60s in a New York hospital, St. Vincent's, which is now closed. Now, he describes an event where a mother gave birth to an infant with a severe birth defect. And this is something known as holoprosencephaly. It's a condition that is very, very severe and fatal. And it's where the face is not appropriately developed and the nose and all the other features do not develop appropriately in the fetus. And you have an infant that is often described as cyclopic. As in they have one eye? Yes. Oh, God. Stories about birth defects are really, really, really hard for me to listen to. It's it's truly one of the things that scares me most. Like, it, it, I feel so much empathy and my heart just hurts for every single person involved. Well, so this time, you know, due to the very paternalistic nature of medicine, the baby was actually kept from the mother. No fucking way. And she was told that the baby died. So the person that wrote this up in Psychology Today is Dr. Frederick Newman, who was a resident when the baby was born. Now, he perfectly exemplifies the harm that can come from a paternalistic and cold style of medicine. He says, it was a monster. That was the medical term used to describe a grossly misshapen baby. The doctor was concerned. Then, first of all, about the effect on its mother seeing the child. Therefore, he told the parents that it was born dead, that the body had been disposed of. But the child was alive. This particular monster had deformities that were not consistent with it living for any length of time. As far as I was concerned, however, he had done the right thing. How? uh, In what universe? Oh, he says that doctors confront these situations sometimes. For instance, a different obstetrician, finding himself delivering a baby, such as the one described above, might smother the baby before anyone had the chance to see it. Such things happen. It did not look like a baby. It did not even look like a doll. It was unworldly, alien. It was, someone said, one of God's little jokes. The hospital staff expected and hoped that the newborn would soon pass away, but he did not. They left the child ignored in the back of the hospital nursery. Doctors and nurses waited for him to starve. An excruciating death watch followed that dragged on for about 13 days. The resident told me during rounds that he wanted me to treat the baby's extra fingers. I said, the baby's going to die. Well, you might as well use this opportunity as a learning experience. So when he went to perform the procedure... He says, when I went over to the baby, it was lying quietly in its bed. It did not object when I picked up its hand, but when I tied the ligature around its finger and pulled tightly, it screamed. The kid was in pain. It could feel pain. I should have realized that, but somehow I did not. It was because the baby did not really look like a baby, I thought. I put the child down and retreated out of earshot. Dying though it might be, the staff still had to tend to it to change it, to clean it, to hold it, and repeated attempts to comfort it. The baby was suffering, and so was everyone else. Earlier, I had caught an aide crying. A couple of nurses had stayed home that day. 
It was at that point that I began to think about killing the baby. I went to the ward that night, even though I was feeling a little sick and discovered that the baby had died. It was gone. Someone had beat me to it, I thought. But that was unlikely. Probably the baby starved to death, like it was supposed to. So, obviously, I have massive problems with this, as many, many people did when they read this. I have personally cared for plenty of children with massive deformities and fatal, fatal problems. And I have seen them treated with respect and care and love by not only the nurses and physicians, but also the families and families that enjoy the small amount of time that they might get with kids like this. When you carry a baby to term and you want it, and you wish for it to be healthy, and you think of all the future that it can have, all the possible futures, there's no version of that child's life that will feel like a waste. Right, And this guy even had the audacity to kind of write a rebuttal article talking about some of the things people said said one reader commented that she knew of a similarly deformed or defective child that was loved and nurtured during the brief time. The baby was alive. Its short life was memorialized by its parents with a photograph. But that baby was different from the Cyclops child. I know because no one would want a memento about having given birth to this child. He says, I do not think it can help the reader imagine this child. It's too far outside ordinary human experience. There are pictures of Cyclops children on the internet. I could have reproduced such a picture in my blog, I suppose, but sickening as these pictures are, they are not so terrible as the child I rocked in my arms long ago every day, trying unsuccessfully to comfort it. I think the mother would have been crippled by seeing the baby she just gave birth to. I'm so glad that he knows how she would have felt. I mean, this is a guy that has no soul. (laughs) I mean, truly... I don't know what is wrong with this person. Well, they're a sociopath. I mean, I'm fairly certain they have antisocial personality disorder. Like that's, I hate to diagnose people from a distance, haven't talked to him, but you don't respond to human life this way. It's just not, it's not human nature. And that's true because his problem was that he never accepted that this was human life. Even when he saw it wanting to be comforted and he saw the pain that it could be in, he still would not accept it. And this is someone who's gone into medicine. He's a psychologist. (laughs) That's worse. I know. (laughs) I know. First of all, it's not his decision. And I feel like we've come a lot closer to accepting that today. This didn't happen yesterday. No, but it was only 50 years ago. I mean, we were lobotomizing people left and right 50 years ago. I do feel like we've come to respect the family's rights a little more. No, I agree. And, you know, you said that it was you know, very animalistic of him. You know, this is not... It's not human nature. Right. And, and that's so, so true. You know, we've talked about plenty of horrid things people have done, but... At the heart of things, there's still a human nature of wanting to care for your children. No matter if they do have 
some sort of physical deformity or other kind of problem. I mean, this is recently shown in a 2009 study that showed that a 530,000-year-old fossil skull belonging to a child of a Homo hiddelbergenus lived to the age of 10 despite being born with severe birth defect called craniosynostosis. Is that the one where the plates fuse too soon? Right. You said it's like normally fatal and... You have to take very good care of these kids because they can have really serious problems. And, and, you know, craniosynostosis, of course, has its variations of severity. But this kid had to be taken care of. There had to be a person or a community effort at a time when it wasn't easy to survive to 10 years old. Period. At all. This kid dead. Now, the paleoanthropologist Anna Garcia, who published this paper, said it's amazing that this child was able to survive until 10 years old. This is the most ancient proof of social care of the handicapped. This discovery showed that this child was not an impediment to receiving the same action as any other child 530,000 years ago before we start to call ourselves man. I think it's something that kind of comes around with man, the hunter, like this idea that there was massive infanticide, like that we were just discarding kids left and right. Like it's something you read in a lot of new evolutionary psychology books. And that did exist to some point. But sometimes I think that people are so disappointed with how society functions that they want to paint our nature as something dark. They want to say that it's just human nature to cast off unwanted children or lock them away in rooms. And with that, these stories become believable. And the stories also enforce that idea. But it's an excuse. People fall back on it and want to say that everyone's bad and I'm just being as bad as everyone else. We've become a culture of very heartless people in a lot of ways. And we've, we've excused it with these narratives of bleakness, these very bleak and dark narratives. I would say it was more we have the, we're at the risk of becoming that. We're on that precipice where we can choose whether we fall off, whether we fall into that bleak, dark, disappointing room. I find it very ironic that that doctor went out of his way to say that monster was the medical term for a very misformed baby. To excuse himself to use it. He was relying on old ideas. And maybe when we rely on old ideas, we don't find the better angels of our nature. I think the medical term is monster. The kind of thing that we have the potential to become. But that's not our nature. There are also millions of stories of people that have cared for those that are suffering, those that need the help. And this dates back to even before we were man. So we can make that choice. And something that in today's current climate, we have to choose. We have to make that leap. No excuses. 
Those are just a story. Yeah. That's just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen.